We were taught that uh, Ricky Dozen was the father father of professional wrestling in Japan. Of course, of course. And he actually, he had competitions too. And not just his JWP Nippon Pro Wrestling. Around the same time, there was Masahiko Kimura's version of International and Toshio Yamaguchi version of Osaka-based All Japan Pro Wrestling, which is different from, completely different from Giant Baba's. All Japan Pro Wrestling a couple of decades later. Mm-hmm. And there was like a Toa Pro Wrestling, the Asia Pro Wrestling, and it's like a five, six, seven different wrestling groups around the country that, that Ricky Dozen actually conquered. And uh, actually, the, the two judoka that I just mentioned, Masahiko Kimura and Toshio Yamaguchi, those two actually debuted year before Ricky Dozen did. Yeah, they had sort of a, not a wrestling background already, but they were fighting in front of people. At least Masiko Kimura was. They were doing you know, live fights. Uh, there was a there was a, a organization called Professional Judo, Kokusai Judo, that the the pro pro division of uh, the, which is completely against Kodokan Judo's method. That uh, there's no professional, right? But uh, after the war, uh, 1950 to be exact, uh, they started. Uh, um, the gentleman, uh, Mr. Ushijima, that the Tatsukuma Ushijima, the big time judoka, uh, they broke out from Kodokan and started professional judo uh, division. And they really ran uh, professional judo shows like professional wrestling, you know, professional wrestling at the time, but it was short lived. And uh, uh, Masahiko Kimura and, uh, went to Hawaii. Uh, for the to be the judo coach and the, the, the judo exhibition, and before he noticed, he was standing in wrestling ring in Hawaii. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He didn't even mean to be a professional wrestler. He was still in judo, but the uh, the promoter in Hawaii they used him as a professional wrestler, and so uh, it's there's has always been a little bit of revisionist writing in Japanese history, was which was written, you know, but. The, yeah, both Yama, Toshio Yamaguchi and Masahiko Kimura started professional wrestling career a year before Ricky Dozen started, which is interesting. Yeah, because in in the big history book, Ricky Dozen is a you know and was and is the pioneer of professional wrestling in Japan, pro wrestling, right? But uh, there were quite a few people who did professional wrestling before Ricky Dozen did. What I'm trying to get to is though that it wasn't always the big time, you know, company, you know, in Japan. It was always been, uh, yeah, Ricky Dozen's wrestling was Channel Four and uh, Mitsubishi, uh, the sponsorship and uh, all these, you know, people that helped him out to start the like a mega budget event, you know, in Japan. Like the beginning of television was a beginning of professional wrestling. Or we should say beginning of, beginning of professional wrestling in Japan was the beginning of television. Television made pro you know wrestling famous, but it was professional wrestling that made television uh, like a, your thing you have to buy you know mm. at home. And then then there, and then there was a war that uh, we we really have to learn a little bit of real history in World War Two. And there was Pearl Harbor in 1941, and then there was Hiroshima's in Narasaki 1945. And the war was over; Japan surrendered uh, unconditionally. And there was a U.S. occupation, GHQ, that uh, general headquarters led by General MacArthur. And for six-year period, Japan was occupied, you know, by U.S. And uh, and just two weeks after San Francisco peace signing in 1951, two weeks after the peace signing, there was wrestling in Japan already. Uh, Bobby Brands uh, and his his troop, uh, tribute to U.S. troops, and then they ran wrestling card in Memorial uh, State uh, Memorial Building, which was actually small old small palace, and then in the 
just under two weeks training under Tash Togo, Howard Sakata, Ricky Dawson debuted in Japan, which was 1951. Then they spent two years in San Francisco, learned how to be a promoter, how to be a producer, how to, how to how, how, you know, Ricky Dawson learned how to produce TV shows, and he became, uh, uh, just studied how to be a promoter and the performer in the ring, all in one package. And uh, you know the rest of the history. And uh, Antonio Inoki's New Japan Pro Wrestling 1972, you know, foundation, and Jan Baba's All Japan Pro Wrestling, also 1972. So it's been 50 years. This is 50th year anniversary year, 2022. 50 years of New Japan and 50 years of All Japan Pro Wrestling. Well, it's, today's New Japan isn't exactly Inoki's New Japan, and today's All Japan isn't Jan Baba's All Japan, but these are same, basically same logo, same company, same legacy. Anyhow, that uh, we had to wait till like mid '80s, and there was UWF, and uh, UWF was a force that uh, the people believed, and even mass media and the writers and journalists and serious fans all believed that uh, Maeda, Takada, Fujiwara, Sayama, that uh, Yamazaki, uh, Funaki, and Minoru Suzuki, all these people were going to change professional professional wrestling into legitimate contest like today's MMA, right? Mm -hmm. Revolutionized. At the same time, 1990 was a year. Now we're getting to today's topic. 1990 was a year that had the the, the, the bunch of the, not the whole bunch, but the group of independent pro wrestling company really started, you know, together. It was 1989 then that the, uh, Atsushi Onita started FMW, you know, after the single match against late. Um, um, karate fighter that who just passed Aoyagi. away. Aoyagi. Aoyagi, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he also was going to be a wrestler too, you know, in which he formed his own pro wrestling company a couple years later, Kakutogi Pro Wrestling. And uh, after Onita started, this is, uh, at the time, we used to call them garbage wrestling or garbage right. promotion, right? That was yeah. how it was talked about, in the, that's how it was introduced in the States too. Garbage wrestling. Yeah, because a, a bunch of, you know, no-name wrestler, but it's gimmick matches. And the electrifier, you know, fight, uh, barbed wire and the comb, you know, mine, and, and it's all kinds of gimmick, right? And of course, uh, the tornado tag team, that the street fight was, you have denim on and then you have a fight. It's just like, it was content that got so big and Onita became the one-man show superstar. But after that, you had a very similar, you know, similar approach in Wing, then IWA Japan. Then people in states know IWA Japan because of Deathmatch Town, you know, tournament that made Cactus Jack like almost overnight sensation all over the world. Hmm. That was famous. Yeah. That was famous match. Yeah, yeah. And actually, IWA Japan had people like Terry Funk, Terry Gordy, you know, that the, all the uh, then. Not so famous, but that yeah, he uh, he he switched side from from New Japan to Old Japan to Old Japan to Independent Scene because he was getting a little old, but still big big name. And IW Japan brought brought the whole a big legend like Akela Kowalski and John Talos too, you know, mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of guys that uh, Victor Quinones trained, you know, from Puerto Rico, and also they created people like Leatherface, that the Crypt Keeper, and yeah, and uh, they gave life. To these character and they became the the whole genre of it, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ultimate Dragon Yoshi, you know, Yoshihiro Asai was responsible of bringing in his own Mexican style. Now we are talking about Ultimate Dragon. Whew. Now it's, uh, it's 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 better understand this big picture. You know, we talked about fifty years of sixty years of Japanese wrestling history in five minutes now, but. Uh, uh, it's been like this since '90 that because uh, the re another reason I'm tr you know trying to uh, that the uh, like have better understanding was that until then that the, no wrestling company will make it if you don't have network television. See, Antonio Inoki's New Japan Pro Wrestling was Channel 10. Now it's five, but the TV Asahi network budget was network television, prime time on regular television. Jan Baba's All Japan Pro Wrestling Channel 4, Nippon TV, with Yomiuri budget and, and the network budget. And, and 
they were paying like a, your your you know TV rights money at the time. You know, like millions and millions of dollars in in annual budget, and that's how major wrestling company was operated at the time. Then then uh, it was like in theory, no wrestling company could survive without television budget. I mean, not just running a bunch of house shows. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And the TV companies had quite a bit to do with the decision-making. Influence, because they looked at both Channel 4 and TV Asahi. They were both looking at it as a, this is wrestling, but it's our prime-time programming. Mm -hmm. TV show. Weekly TV show that compete with all the you know high budget drama or quiz show or sometimes major league baseball programming or just that the wrestling uh, until eight, 1980s they were in place where you have to compete with other major league entertainment but Anthony Inoki could carry it and Giant Baba could carry that you know and uh, there were always uh, two big major league company with major league network television budget that was the th- in theory no wrestling company could survive you know could survive or make it without television budget but it made sense at the time because like i said running house shows and selling march isn't enough right then 80s was also have to remember that uh, ev- that was an era everybody bought the vcr huh that's right that was vcr yeah generation. yeah so U UWF, uh, Onita's FMW, and all the spin-off, and Universal was the same way that they sold their own official uh, VHS videotape series. And if you're a serious wrestling fan, you had to buy it. Hmm. Yeah, because they didn't have television, but the v- VH VHS version of their official videotape came out like once a month, and uh, UWF made a lot of money with that. You know, then later on they became laser disc, if you remember. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was like almost like a missing link, isn't it now? Kind of it was like a late eighties, early nineties around the time we're talking about. Uh, that's when it was at least over in the States. Yeah. That's when I first started seeing. Yeah, and then Laserdisc, and we were told that the, this is gonna thing, it's a take over all the VHS tape and you have to, you know. <laughs> drop all the VCR and the VHS tape and the laser disc was going to be the thing which didn't become and uh, it was a big round thing like LP record but uh, now uh, just five six years later, it became DVD and it really took over VHS and overnight VHS disappeared but the, to bring the story back to VHS era that the wrestling it, VHS and its distribution and the videotape market, it really helped independent scene in Japan. Does that make sense? Yeah, it became a big yeah. part of the, the economy, I guess. There'd always be VHS stores with the magazines, too. Yeah, and uh, also, if you remember that the, all the you know train stations and subway stations in Tokyo, there was a rental video place like Staya, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, people rent you know videos on DVD, so a lot of people had access to these new wrestling companies. Yeah, they didn't almost still didn't around have today. To. I think only Staya. I mean, a lot of them went out of business. Yeah, I think people should because know, of I mean, streaming. Yeah, but it's interesting that a place like Tataya is still even in business when over here, uh, renting physical copies, you know. Like of dvds yeah dvds that it's been out of fashion for about 10 years now yeah yeah but though if you want to watch classic movie or something yeah 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 the the dvd still has a place in the market especially when it's like a like pro wrestling where it's probably not going to be remastered anytime soon if it isn't already right so niche and if it's not you know new japan where it's not on a streaming service you pretty much have no choice other than i mean if you want a physical and a good Visual quality, you probably have to get it. Right. Original. Yeah, like a digital format. Yeah, DVD. Yes. But now I'm pretty sure that the, um, this live streaming, you know, you know, the, the internet version of paper pay per view will be the thing, and uh, that's what New Japan, AEW, and uh, that the Forbidden Door, for, you know, for instance. Yeah, that's all on internet pay per view market. And uh, 
they are charging you at the fifty dollars to watch that show. So, uh, and that's the market. But uh, just just like you know, we always talk about this professional wrestling always moved forward with the, the latest technology, and uh, wrestling. Yeah, when when the VHS was a thing, wrestling was the big thing on the VHS market, and then when you turn to uh, Laser disc for just short period of time. I still have the the best of UWF on laser disc. I just don't have DVD on laser disc playing here anymore. <laughs> but the Ultimate Dragon was a pioneer on that. That the, the Universal Pro Wrestling started in 1990 without television, and he had their you know they had their own success. And Universal run by uh, Hisatsune Shima, that uh, Hisashi Shima's junior. And uh, they had yeah certain success without television, and they ran many tours for well just three year period, and started 1990. But 1991, Ultimate Dragon, no at the time uh, Yoshihiro Asai became Ultimate Dragon with a Triple A, you know that Triple A new promotion in Mexico. Then came back to Japan as Ultimate Dragon and joined Tenru's SWS instead. Yeah. But SWS went out of business in 1992, and Tenru formed, formed another spin-off, WAR, right? Then Ultimate Dragon joined WAR. But the w, uh, uh, Tenru's WAR and uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling at the time had a working relationship. Tenru worked all the Tokyo Dome dates, remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Ultimate Dragon was able to produce his own idea of what junior heavyweight division should be and work closely with somebody like Liger, you know, that the Liger was in, always in charge of New Japan's, uh, the, the creative uh, division of the junior heavyweight division. He was creative too. Uh, and uh, like we talked about in previous, uh, the part one, they created that they unified all the existing junior heavyweight title in the world, which was exciting. Uh, the J crown. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, there was like not just, you know, over the top or top of top of uh, top of the best of the super junior or top of the super junior or over the top super juniors. So best they, of the they super changed. Juniors. Yeah. They well, changed now the it's like a, yeah, but now it's like a, they've been around 30 years now, but the yeah. Ultimate Dragon and Liger together, they created the whole completely separate division of new the, the junior heavyweight division separate from heavyweight division so it, junior heavyweight was no longer undercard of your big show does that make sense right and even ultimo dragon had some uh higher profile matches in tokyo dome around this time with liger like you mentioned uh he was yeah yeah but he was never part of new japan pro wrestling he kept it separate yeah, yeah and that's kind ultimo of Dra- do you think that's why he sort of seemed to break out of that uh, perception that fans had at the time that if you weren't a big heavyweight in a big company that you could be a big star i mean i think he he positioned himself like an attraction like something special yeah and somebody completely different from everybody else every time yeah, well, he today's in new japan yeah today's in new, new japan will probably want to sign you for the full-time deal of course, of course. But at the time, yeah, just was, like, that wasn't the style. Well, probably New Japan wanted them, you know, you know, just like the way, you know, today's New Japan, when, when they discovered Kota Ibushi and Kenny Omega from DDT and they signed them away, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, come come to Major League and sign a you know, full-time, like a full-time deal, like a, they own you. But Ultimate Dragon, choose not to do so yeah and he also wanted to travel he you know he split his you know split his time in japan mexico and america that uh, he was going to be a part of wcw's monday nitro if you remember that's why that a lot of people remember ultimate dragon as a part of the nitro program Mm -hmm. it was a big part of the cruiserweight division they had right and also that portion of nitro allowed all the mexican existing superstars you know to come into america and then be part of nitro they weren't exactly treated like a super super superstar 
but the Nitro became three hour show and then had a, enough time to have their own little, you know, corner of the show. You know, Ray Mysterio and Scorsis that, uh, um, of course, who went to be, yeah, who went to they came to America and Ray Mysterio had his run with WCW years before WWF. Yeah, people tend to forget about that, you know, that now they are talking about Ray Mysterio's 20 year anniversary in WWE, right? But he and, was, um, he was one of the best parts of. WCW towards the end. Nitro show, yeah. Absolutely. But they they, they unmasked him and uh, had him do weird uh, things. Yeah, yeah. And, you know what I'm saying? Filthy animals. Yeah. yeah. See, unmasking, I mean, like, a, take ma- taking mask off in Mexico is, like, something very, you know, like, important that had to be remembered. And once you take the mask off, you cannot go back to the old, you know, costume and uh, a lot of the mexican wrestlers even after they lose the mask they keep the ring name but you're not allowed to you know put the mask on again and that's strict yeah and uh but wcw's you know nitro's television you know their method really destroyed all the like a tradition you know what i'm saying yeah and it, it definitely impacted their career at the time i mean Ray Mysterio Jr.'s fine. Yeah, more now, viewers watched them. Yeah. It, it did, but um, they did have to also, re- at least for Ray Jr., he had to kind of rebuild himself in WWE as the mask character. Yeah, yeah. Go back to your own, yeah. Become Ray Mysterio, Ray Mysterio again. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was like he had two, uh, on Myster- you know, for Mysterio's case, that he had two separate career. WCW and WWE. Mm-hmm. He really started over, you know, being like a, this basic Rey Mysterio again and start over. But they did the long vignette and uh, mask, you know, this they whole did. graphic on the entrance ramp way and really introduced as real big deal, which was good. Triple H idea, right? And, uh, but the, uh, back to Ultimo Dragon, he, like, for like a four year period, five year period, he, from his home in Mexico, he took plane wherever you know. Every 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 week, he took the long long flight out to wherever Monday Nitro was taping, and then once a month he came back to Japan and worked for WR Ten Roos Group. Then went back to Mexico and, and worked and go to America and work. And uh, that was like his. Uh, well, he didn't have to do it, but that's the way he wanted to do it, the male maskers way. Yeah, that that made him like a very different from everybody else too. And he was so regular on WCW programming that he he won. He became kind of a household name if you were a fan. You'd always be. Yeah. And if you do look back at his career in WCW, for some reason he was booked very strongly. Almost never lost his matches unless it was in a title match or something like that. But in oh, general, on television, on oh, television, okay, he was booked okay. very strongly. You know. It, because when we think about that cruiserweight division, you think about all these great wrestlers who unfortunately had to uh, be in positions where they had to make other people look good when they probably huh. should have been stars. But with Ultimo Dragon, I, revisiting some of the material you know, to prep for our show is he never really lost. He was booked very huh. strongly. Um, it's hard to find okay. matches where on every put- week's Monday Nitros, like uh, the, the lineups, were there more than two Lucha Libre matches? Sometimes, one? but sometimes, but they would be uh, spaced out between the first two hours, usually, depending yeah. on what. I mean, the more uh, NWO got popular, the more they yeah, started to do more time on it. And they didn't even wrestle. That's just like a lot of long interviews. Or, yeah. or there would be a cruiserweight match that would be interrupted, and something else would happen. You know, the, the uh, match would just stop. Like NWO, a backdrop of things. <laughs> yeah, it was It was more like a, yeah, exactly. Backdrop for another story. But, another I mean, story line. Looking ba- if you look back on it, you look at the generation of wrestlers now wrestling, both WWE 
AEW, everywhere, New Japan, it's clear you can see the Ultimo Dragon influence, among others, but Ultimo Bliss. Dragon is, it's his layout, his template, whatever you want to call it, the way he approaches his wrestling, is very copied. And it's uh. clear when he does, when he does, you could say, oh, that's the original idea. I, I see what he intended. But his ideas are, are so um, widespread and they're good ideas that people took and, and made their own. Asahi Moonsol. Um, and, and, he, and he kind of took what Sayama was doing as well and sort of made it more Western or, or even more Lucha, Lucha Libre. Well, well international market. International, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because Satoru Sayama is just so special. But uh, his Tiger, original Tiger Mask era only lasted less than three years. Mm. Then after that, he he briefly, in short, in a one-year period, he worked original UWF. But he was not in professional wrestling any longer that he created Shuto, That's which right. is today's MMA. Yeah, and then he walked away from wrestling. And he, uh, he it was left. Satoru Sayama's way. But the Ultimate Dragon had this big love only for wrestling, nothing else, nothing else. And also, he has always been a fan of mask and costume. Remember? Yeah. Yeah, he is. It seems as you correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like his personality is more less like a Sayama, more like a um, like you said, Mil Mascaras or Santo. Uh, not the personality, wise. but the position, yeah. Oh, position, okay, yeah, that's a better word. Yeah, position himself, because he is not like Mil Maskers. <laughs> sure, I, yeah, that, that was, I misspoke. It's positioning, or he's playing the role of the classy Lucha Libre superstar, international superstar, um, and dedicated to the mask, the life of the mask. And also paved the way to many wrestlers. So many, yeah, we should talk about that. We should talk about when he Yeah, because, um, um, Actually, he did not stay with WCW Monday Nitro until the dying day of WCW. So he, after this, you know, left elbow surgery and that uh, something happened and he had a permanent nerve damage and all, and, and his lawyer had to sue uh, WCW. And, uh, you know, that's a bitter, you know, court case. And at the time, he basically left WCW altogether, like in 97. Mm. something like then that that's, yeah. yeah and that's when he went back to Mexico and trained first 50 guys from Japan <laughs> like when you say 50 it's like all oh, oh, did they all debut yes they all debuted you know and uh, most of them work today and uh, it was a Toriumo era uh, between 1997 to 2003 I believe and they um, he wasn't going to run the company called Toriumo in Japan, but they, so many guys debuted, but they that the, they needed place to work. I mean, they, you know, he trained and debuted, you know, first 30, 40 wrestlers that they can work, and they they're all looking for full time, I mean, full time job, right, full time position. Then they brought, you know, brought brought the first two group of. Uh, the Toriumon trainees, and that became the original Toriumon and became completely new company with the, the, the Toriumon guys, the, the, the 30 wrestler original roster running their own show, which is very interesting because none of these, these people had never seen any of these guys. They are all trained under Ultima Dragon in Mexico and debuted in Mexico and came back to Japan as like all new face, new stars. That was very interesting because you would know some of the wrestlers, right? But no, nobody recognized any of these guys. But it was all new face, all including people like you know today's Sima. You know there were Sumo, uh, Sumo Fuji, and Sua, and the, he doesn't work anymore. But the Magnum Tokyo, that or uh, today's Naruki Doi, you know that uh, Genki Sudo. They were all there. They're all in there, and. Uh, it was very interesting way to bring in that the like uh, thirty rookies all together. But it was like wow, people really liked the you know that the the way they run the card because it was a Japanese all new Japanese wrestlers doing their own Japanese Mexican style, and none people have haven't seen any of these guys. But the, so 
right, or become their fan. And then, then Torimo had a good following right away. And also, they did not base their company out of Tokyo. They based the company out, uh, out in Kobe, which was another success, too. Because at the time, Osaka, you know, the second biggest city in Japan, right? Osaka, Kobe area didn't have their home-based wrestling company. And it was... Whereas Tokyo had many. Yeah, I mean Tokyo is just—it's—it's it's the mecca for, for Japanese. Or oh, anything, right. yeah, 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 or, yeah or the TV station, record company, or newspapers, yeah, anything. But uh, they choose Kobe area uh, to be their home base, and they built the Toriumon Dojo in Kobe too, where today's um, like a Shingo Takagi trained, or people like BB uh, Hawk, if you remember, mm -hmm. and all these people are trained under Toriumon method. And uh, that Ultimate Dragon remained with Ultima, uh, the, the Toriumon company until 2003. But uh, there was a minor falling out that the Ultimate Dragon as a president or the chairman who is actually never there because he still is Ultimate Dragon and he travels to, you know, other part of the, part of the world, even Europe, Italy, you know, that... Uh, or England that uh, and we went back to you know uh, that the uh, states and work a little bit and also I kind of didn't think Ultimate Dragon wanted to work with all these trainees he trained you know in the ring because he's the only veteran and thirty guys in the equal amount of you know training and they're all young and athletic and they can work like Ultimate Dragon of course not not quite but. Uh, they were all, they all had image uh, that's in a similar size body and they had this thing that they wanted to do in the ring, you know, the high flying, that uh, the tope to prancha to all these, the, the Japanese style lucha libre, you know. Then, then, then I don't think Ultimate Dragon felt comfortable working with these people, you know, these guys in the ring together. Does that make sense? Yeah, and he was still uh, getting over that, that surgery issue he had. Right, right, because he thought he, he basically he retired about five year period. Eventually, yeah, he'll go back. I was under the impression he was done for good at that time. Right, because we were told that he had a permanent nerve damage in in his left elbow. And of course, when he comes out to the, the in front of the audience, he always had the mask on. You know, working working in the ring or not, he always will be Ultimate Dragon. You know what I'm saying? But uh, right, he didn't work for like a five year period, and uh, yeah, I was under the impression that he was done too. But no, not quite. In 2004, that uh, he pretty much 2003. Then right away after he had a small falling out, that he gave the company, you know, to their own. That operation and Torimon became today's Dragon Gate. We have to add. Yeah, uh, that was 2003 that that Torimon Japan became uh, today's Dragon Gate, right? Just but a the bit more about the do oh, I'm yeah, the, go ahead. I just wanted to, about the initial um, Torimon group. The first couple of guys. Yeah? I do remember a couple of them. Ultimo Dragon somehow got them onto the WCW broadcast. I remember seeing Shima. Yeah, Shima yeah. Nobunaga. When he was a Shima Toyonaga, to, 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 to they had a longer name. Nobunaga, yeah. Yeah, Shima Nobunaga and Judo Sua and Sumo Fuji. And, uh, and Judo Magnum Sua Tokyo. and Sumo Fuji. Magnum Tokyo, too. That was in, in uh, the, the, on the WCW worldwide taping. Yeah, yeah, because the the, the, the syndicate, yeah, syndicated program, right? That they taped twelve shows at a time at the CNN Center in Atlanta. Yeah, right. He brought the uh, yeah at the time Chigusa Nagayo brought brought in like a fifteen year old Meiko Satomura too. Ah, uh, that's right for uh, Gaia. Yeah, from Gaia. Yeah, it was a very interesting period that 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 portion of WCW Worldwide, uh, the syndicated show, I think all the archives are with WC, uh, WWE now. It's just not showing it on the you know, WWE Network. They have that archive. Yeah, you might, if you dig but, around on uh, YouTube, Daily Motion, you'll find some hidden gems. Yeah, I there. think so. I think so. Right, right. And the 2003, uh, for the period, 
uh, for a time that Ultimate Dragon, you know, separated from Dragon Gate, uh, that the portion of that, that dojo, that he's he still had Toriumon Dojo in Mexico too, though. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. he trained another 20, 30 guys. Yeah. Yeah, I think also it's hard to translate it now because it's 20 years later, but I remember receiving a Toriumon tape. They did a it was kind of 97 when they started to train. I think it was maybe 99 or 2000 when they put okay. on a, a, one of their bigger shows for the time at Coraquin. And it was floating okay. around uh, the tape tape trading scene in the U.S. Trading market. Okay. Today, right. But at the time. At the time, I don't think people realize how fast it was or how innovative. Very innovating. Oh, fast pace. Oh, and fast pace. Fast pace. Uh, they were small, but they weren't too small. I mean, guys like Sumo Fuji, Durosua, they were good base wrestlers. Well, actually, if you had them stand right next to people like Kobashi and Misawa, you'll know. That's right, yeah. <laughs> you know? right. But, um, yeah but everybody else the same size, all 5'8". You know yeah. what I mean? Flashy look, yeah. different look, uh, very professional-looking costumes. The production was wild, and it was... Very different from what you'd see in the main event at All Japan and New Japan. It was yeah. still serious. And the first generation of Toriumon guys, 20 years later, none of them were working today's Dragon Gate, but most of these guys are main event guys on small independency today, even. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was special. I don't know if it was you know just Ultimo Dragon's training or this crop of uh, original Toriumon guys, but uh, they're special. And it's hard to. Oh, very special. I watch special it 20 now. Guys or so, yeah. You can watch it now, and it's kind of like, okay, this is cool. This is, this is fantastic, but it's not the same feeling that you got when when those wrestlers started to appear more and more in Ultimo Dragon. Yeah, those were the talented small guys. They probably would have, you know, gone to Old Japan Dojo or New Japan Dojo, and they'd make it. But the day would have been the smallest guy in the group. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was still uh, was positioned the junior heavyweight style and the division was positioned in a way where it was going to be it was never going to have the like a mid card to a semi main event but never be the main event right yeah only on its own special show that was still the mentality so that was junior kind of- heavyweight type of show right but Liga was the only one conducting the business that way and you see. With Liger's case with New Japan, he had his you know rival like in the Wild Pegasus, you know like Benoit and the Black Tiger version of Eddie Guerrero, El Samurai, you know that uh, his own rivals, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, not the whole twenty guys. They couldn't use twenty junior heavyweight guys. So there was the mar- market in place for Toriumon, Dragon Gate type of wrestling, and their guys. They're so so talented, but they had to be in their own ring. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. they had to have their own house, their own set. environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think but, late- uh, basically, yeah. Oh, I was going to say. Ultimate this- Dragon left their ch- you know, children, you know? Yeah, yeah. The children and, and the, what's the word? I guess the disciples, the, but also the way of wrestling, that Torimon style of wrestling. It's not quite lucha. It's not quite Japanese pro wrestling. It's its own. It's their style. So it's, fast and actually real complicated, long high spot, right? And lots of contact. It's not like some lucha libre where sometimes you feel like they don't. Oh, look, way too, other, way yeah. too choreographed looking. This is, you could tell the foundation is in traditional Japanese pro wrestling. You can tell they all have a right. foundation. How to take a proper fall. The training method, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How, how to make everything look good, how to make their body do what it needs to do and then take it to the next level. And uh, the, the karate chop to your chest has to make big sound and hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And oh, chops, were, and the backhand chop, all, it's all in there. Yeah. It was very fresh. Every move felt like it was a new move. Everything felt new and fresh and different and um against yeah and i was amazed was, that yeah. many guys all at once yeah so well, that's, today's you know that the uh, taiji shimori new japan's iwgp you know junior heavyweight champion he was in that group like 18 years old right mm. 
Yeah. How old is he? A lot of them. He's not. Oh, 40? He still looks pretty young, but uh, he has, you know, 18, 20 years in, in, in his career. Yeah. And he still looks like he could go another 20 years, I'm sure. Um, if you've ever pretty seen him much. in person, yeah. he's, he's a massive dude, for sure. Um, yeah. And, and again, he's a great example of that style that was developed. That style, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a perfect example of that. Because he, even ever since he's gone to New Japan, he hasn't really change his style his gimmick is different but his way of wrestling if you remember he had pro wrestling noah run too that's right he was i thought yeah. of him if anything i mean he's a freelance but he's more of a noah guy than anything often tagging with you know, right because misawa thought well is late mitsuharu misawa you know looked at him and said well let's get this guy right mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so talented small but so talented yeah and um, so he, they had to have him. Also, uh, Okada. Uh, Ultimo had. Uh, oh, God. Right out of ninth grade. He didn't even go back to high school in 10th grade. He went straight to Mexico when he was what? That, 15? Barely 16. Yeah. Yeah, before 16th birthday. Now, but that, that tells you about this determination, you know? You didn't even finish high school. You just, he, he knew what he wanted to do with his life, you know? Well, what, what's different, though, about Okada is that he wasn't a small guy. He's a big yeah, guy. He, he was light, you know, like a thin, but he was just as tall. Yeah. I mean, I think now he's, what, 6'3", six, 6'4"? Six, I mean, he's he's like oh, Keiji Muto. So he's, he's bigger than the average guy, oh, but he's also... Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, he's really, really big. And Ultimate Dragon knew uh, right then when he met 15-year-old Okada, it's, this guy is going to work in New Japan. Train here and debut here, work in Lucha style, that's fine. But eventually, he will he should go to New Japan. He's got a major league caliber, you know. He knew it right then. What do you think it is about Okada, or what did he uh, absorb from Ultimo Dragon that makes him so special today? What is it that sets him apart from somebody like Hiroshi Tanahashi? was purely a new japan guy but the tanahashi is very special too and it was also this is not just simple one reason because kazuchika okada was marketed so differently than, than anybody else that uh, upon his return from tna if you remember he spent one year in america that the tna impact didn't do anything for him you know, he was just there kind of spending time, right? Mm-hmm. And going through motion almost. But the New Japan, and to be exact, Gedo had the plan. Upon his return, he'll become IWGP champion. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It wasn't nearly as polished. But now that Okada's been around 10 years as, as IWGP champion, and we forget that, that he was kind of green at the time you know but uh new japan had the vision that uh, he this guy will become this guy will become iwgp champion and he this guy will you know make everybody rich for the next 10 years and uh okada himself had the vision you know right out of ninth grade he just wanted to be a wrestler nothing else and he was really talented but that's today's kid that he did not want to go to New Japan Dojo or All Japan Dojo or the UWF style MMA kind of training. He knew what he wanted to do as a kid. That's that's very special too. And it's interesting that it's not, you know, who you would imagine. It's not exactly Keiji Muto he looked up. It's not exactly John Cena who he looked up. Not stink. It's Ultimo Dragon. It's a totally different style, uh, totally different uh, kind of style that was popular when he was a kid. Yeah, and then also he, I, I think he wanted to be himself, not like somebody that's already a big superstar, existing superstar. You, I mean, this guy wanted, you know, he knew he can be the original, which is very important. I mean, to be a superstar of certain era. You know, no, it's not like no anybody else. It's very original, and he is, is Okada is also the wrestler responsible of bringing drop kick into finishing move. He's the only one using drop kick, you know, to the finishing sequence. You notice that? 
the drop kick, I mean, his real high drop kick, right? He can, most wrestlers can do that, right? The beginning of the match before you get tired, but he can jump and throw that drop kick 30, 40 minutes later, just same height, you know? And yeah. uh, he and always, always have drop kick sequence before the Rainmaker finish. You go back and watch that. <laughs> That's very interesting. He always involves the one last drop kick before the finish. That's his original, you know, finish. Very interesting. You know, people subliminally know about it, but they, a lot of people don't notice it. But uh, throwing that kind of drop kick 30 minutes, 40 minutes into the match, oh that gosh. this guy, that this guy has stamina and you know strength and very, very special. Well, when you think about the Rainmaker finish, it's a short clothesline, right? But the way you do it, you know, the, the guy hold the guys from the back and hold the guy's wrist a certain way and twist the guy a certain way and give his clothesline. And it's a whole sequence is studied and remembered by each and every audience. But the, it signals that, that the, it's the, the end of the match coming or the how your opponent will block it or not block it or you know, how Okada is going to, uh, you know, have this rainmaker clothesline at the end and uh, this whole finishing sequence is like really educated the new japan audience for the past 10 years because last 10 years or so new japan's been dealing with rather new audience you know what i'm saying sure yeah, the, after the millennium and into dark age of professional wrestling to 2005, 2006, that a lot, lot of the hardcore fans or the serious fans or steady fans or serious fans or loyal fans even, a lot of them left wrestling for good. And it became MMA fan or, you know, Pride or K K1 fan or, or pretty much left wrestling altogether, you know, after 2006, 2007. But in, in New Japan pretty much had to wait another five years, you know, to really educate the, the new audience. And you really need new superstar like Kazuchika Okada. Yeah. But... Yeah. What's it was about, Ultimate Dragon who trained. Yeah, trained Okada. It's very, very interesting, huh? Yeah, and what's funny about it is Ultimate Dragon as a wrestler is uh, you don't really think of Okada and uh, Ultimate Dragon as having much in common on the surface. And the way Okada wrestles, it's it's. It was only about a month ago. Yeah, but the, and also they don't really socialize. But it was about a month ago that the Ultimate Dragon's Instagram. All of a sudden, had a Kazuchika Okada in there. It's like uh, the, the Okada called Ultimate Dragon just to say hello and have, let's have lunch or something. Mm. It's like Ultimate Dragon thought that he had some business or some proposal, some you know, like a, something concrete to, concrete to talk about. No, it was Okada just picking up a phone just to say hello to their old teacher, uh, Ultimate Dragon. And then they got together for lunch with no reason, no business reason. I think that's really, really beautiful. It says a lot about his character. Okada. Both guys' character. Yeah. yeah. And I think what I was saying earlier, I think Okada has come up with a, a system through Ultimo Dragon's philosophy on wrestling. He's come up with this way of wrestling that he doesn't have to be flashy at all as long as he's perfect, quote-unquote. Like you said, a perfect dropkick, a perfect lariat. Uh, 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 cool. uh, the, the Rainmaker setup. Yeah. Elbow drop. Oh yeah, what yeah, right. He does is doesn't have to have fifteen moves. He just have, does five things. And it, when you think Torimon, you don't think that. You think of Shima. You think of Dragon Kid. You think of high octane impact wrestling. You think of a lot of um, flying, and you don't think of what you see Okada doing in Japan. But well, today's Dragon Gate guys do even more though. Right. Right. Yeah, because Sima is the one who's doing less and less. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. but uh, it, it's, well, he's a veteran too. What, what I think, what I like to do is study the style and study what Okada does and what did he take from Ultimate Dragon? What didn't he take? And what does and and comparing to it's how, more like a philosophy, right? Right. Yeah. Approach to yeah, how to be original, you know, uh, make the match meaningful by doing less, you know, 
the more more wrestling moves don't mean anything that you select just three or four important moves to develop you know and produce your own match and uh yeah uh you don't need 10 15 high spot it just uh, all you do is your signature spot yeah and people eventually learn and edu you know get educated and know what the okada match look like yeah you, so you also mentioned Shingo Takagi earlier, and he's another part of New Japan. He was the yeah he was trained under Kobe version of Toriumon Dragon Gate Dojo. It was another wrestler that the, who didn't want to go through New Japan, you know, the, the dojo system or All Japan dojo system. He chose Dragon Gate Toriumon system. It's a generation of wrestler who choose Toriumon method over New Japan school or All Japan school. It's very interesting. And we're seeing that on the main stage, Every, not just New Japan. We see that. Yeah, because if, if you're talented enough and uh, become important and marketable enough, New Japan will want, want to sign you. Yeah. So there's That's a little bit there. different. Um, so who, is there anybody else we missed that he, uh, that he ended up uh, training or helped train? Ah, uh, there's so many, right. there's so many that, that all the you know like today's you know zero one guys like us you know like us or there's so many that a lot of the today's Michinoku guys you know Yapeman Yapeman two that Ken forty five or that the Shu and K you know that the evil twins mm -hmm. the Baramon Shu Baramon K yeah. I, I don't I don't know how many people listening are familiar with Bar <laughs> Brothers, but I think they're one of those acts that, again, if they were on American television, they'd be massive. I, how do you describe? Well, they that? are the one came up with this the bowling ball, you know, bowling ball shooting into your crotch thing. That's theirs, yeah. And they have yeah, or the big suitcase and the suitcase full of garbage, or the sign you know, of the foreign object in it, and the spraying all the waters to a ringside, you know, audience to all these things that they came up with. Yeah, they are on. Yeah, they were trained under. Uh, yeah, uh, Torimo, and also that uh, he just came back from the, the five-year absent of this, you know, spine cord. Uh, Cancer that uh, Fujita Junior Hayato he was under right. the uh, yeah. yeah he is he fully retired? He, no, he came back and won the title from yeah the Michinoku uh, Tohoku Junior Heavyweight Title recently that he made a full comeback. Uh, junior yeah Fujita Junior Hayato very special guy. He was. I saw him in the ring at I think it was Michinoku Pro doing uh, some kind of he would sometimes give updates uh, to the crowd on his condition and for a while right, it didn't right, seem right. Like how a... he was rehabbing yeah he it... was yeah he he had five year absent but uh, he rehab you know rehabbed and uh, got the doc doctor's green light and uh, he uh, people didn't think but he's he really made comeback just recently oh just just last well only four three weeks ago the last I heard of that news, that this is before the pandemic, when when I met you in Japan around that time, I remember hearing that it was pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, because uh, that the cancer in 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 like a your backbone and spine, you know, and uh, there's nothing they could do about you know no chemo can you know erase it or it's very dangerous to have the, the cancer removed physically because of the place, you know. But uh, he somehow, you know, trained and managed and came back in the first match back. He beat Musashi to be a Michinoku Tohoku Junior Heavyweight Champion. What a story. Yeah. He was also trained in Mexico. He was sent to Mexico by Jinsei Shinzaki, who is Hakushi and also a producer of Michinoku Pro Wrestling, you know, and very interesting of his own. Yeah. And... There are many. There are many. It's like a, uh, a Milano I can collection. Come up with a... Wasn't he trained? Was that by Milano collection? At wasn't he? Yeah, of by... course, of yeah, course, yeah. of course. Um, yeah, Milano collection. At was also the wrestler who was who was discovered by New Japan and got signed away. 
but he had an injury in neck, so he had early retirement. And also he got a, a chiropractic uh, and uh, acupuncture, acupuncture license. And, and he, he, he is a commentator of New Japan Pro Wrestling uh, Television, but he has his own clinic. Wow. I'm talking about the Milano Collection, AT. With all those names, the Ultimate Dragon came up with, though. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. They're, they're, and also they all had a Shitos, you know, like a mini version of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, Milano Collection AT Shito, like a mini version of that. And that became Yapeman later on. And it's just, there's so many. That the second Doi, that the, all these names, that the initial gimmick was just that uh, Maharachi, you know, that the uh, costume, the Mexican tradition, you know, clothing, or the uni- baseball uniform guy, to a uh, rapper, to uh, all these gimmicks. Ultimate Dragon personally came up with all these gimmicks, each and every one of them, and gave it to each and every one of them. You're this, you're this, you're that, you're that. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. But wasn't there yeah, a... Very interesting. There was a... Um... Wrestler, do you remember Stoker Ichikawa? Kind of oh, he's still wrestling. there, like a devil? <laughs> devil, but he was around with the original Toriyaman class. Yeah, that was the original group. He, when he, when Ultimate Dragon looked at Ichikawa, and he just had this, you know, Ultimate Dragon had this idea. Right, everybody wants to be tough guy, right? I mean, like a strong wrestler or tough guy or flying guy or this is something good. But there's nothing good about this trainee guy, the skinny and weak. <laughs> and right, let's create one weak wrestler that that everybody think everybody knows that he's gonna lose. But uh, put a devil's costume on it. This guy made career out of that. Still yeah. doing today with giant ears and. Um, yeah, yeah, he he and, was uh, like that from day one. Yeah. And so, so was that a Ultimate Dragon had the vision. Oh, that's huh? Ultimate Dragon's vision too. Okay. Yeah, you no, know, he came up with the costume and gimmick and whole bit. Wow. Ichikawa didn't come up with it. It was Ultimate Dragon, and he was the initial group. So, the Ultimate Dragon made sure that everybody had gimmick, and uh, he was one of them. It's almost yeah. like his own universe. Dragon universe. Yeah, well, the goods. Yeah, not quite say like a circus, but uh, everybody was his cartoon character, and he enjoyed it. And yeah. they all—they're all wrestlers who followed in Dragon's footsteps in terms of the style that they employed, the kind of wrestlers they became. There is clear direction pointing to Ultimo Dragon. Whether, whether it's yeah, Okada it, it or became, and then ultimately it became Dragon Gate style today. See, right. today's Dragon Gate wrestlers, they weren't trained under Ultimate Dragon, most of them, because they're young and, you know, like in late teens into early 20s, you know, like, well, the, the Lindemann isn't with uh, Dragon Gate, but they're originally from Kobe Torimon Dojo, right? Mm. Lindemann or Oh, I forget these names. I'm sorry. But these guys watched and grew up watching Kobe version of Dragon Gate and wanted to be part of that. So it's like a second, third generation of Ultimate Dragon students. But styles are the same. That's how, yeah, that's how influential Ultimate Dragon really is, though. And and 20 years later, yeah. And 20 years later, that the... Dragon Kid, the same Ultimate Dragon costume, just a little version of that, right? Dragon Kid brought Ultimate Dragon back to to uh, the, the Dragon Gate this last year. No, no, 2019. And he's back with Dragon Gate. It's like a whole circle, whole circle. Yeah, and again, and uh, yeah, it's like there's not, not enough time to cover Ultimate Dragon's legacy. You know, he may not be the most popular superstar in Japan because he, you know, he spent time in Mexico. He spent time in the States. He spent time in different wrestling company. Not like he never had full-time gig with New Japan, never had, although he worked there, though, that the old Japan, today's old Japan pro wrestling, but uh, he always created place for himself. That's what's different. 
yeah, from Universal to oh, UWA Mexico to Triple A Mexico to Universal in Japan to SWS that the WA tenures. Uh, he worked different places. He worked Michinoku Pro Wrestling too, a little bit. And uh, wherever he went, he was Ultimo Dragon. Still is. Still to this day. Yeah, still is. Yeah, because and also above everybody else in that style of wrestling. Now he's what fifty six, something like that. Yeah, fifty six. I think so because he was born nineteen nineteen sixty six. I mean, no, with the mask. He looks pretty similar to how he did years ago. Yeah, twenty five years ago. Yeah, I mean, still keeps the same size. Shape, yeah. And and he probably cannot really fly, but he introduced his own original Jabe Yabe, right? Mm -hmm. And, and he's still working her. with the left hand, that the permanent damaged left elbow, therefore two of his finger not moving, but he can wrestle. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Ah. Oh. It's just very one special. Of a kind. One of a kind. I think so. I think so. I hope we covered a lot of ground yeah. on Ultimate Dragon. You know, like I said, you know, he may not be as popular. I mean, popularly, it may not be as popular as, or famous as uh, Jushin Standard Liger to casual audience. But uh, for real wrestling fan, like a uh, hardcore like you and I, that uh, he is very, very one of a kind, special, special, special superstar. Not just as a wrestler, but also the influencing what he has done in the influence yeah. and, it's and still the creating this uh, style yeah yeah i don't think we've seen and i think effect. like uh mill maskers you know who nobody knows the real age of some people say he's 80 some people say mill maskers is about 83 <laughs> and uh, we just don't know how old he is and he'll never take the mask off in front of the audience and i Expect the same way with Ultimate Dragon that he will be wearing the mask until he's really, really old. And I pretty much, I'm pretty much sure that he'll still work in the ring when he's really old. Much like your Mexican legacy, El Santo, the you know Mel Mascaras too, and Dos Caras, the El Solitario, the Kanek, all these you know the Lucha Libre giants, they would work in the ring until they're really old. And people don't know how old they look because of the costume and mask. But that's uh, that's the whole dynamic of Lucha Libre and as, as costume. Mm -hmm. you know. Part of the, uh, kind of the yeah real life superheroes. Yeah, yeah, the mystery, a little uh, something not entirely human, a little superhuman. Yeah, well, I'm sure that Rey Mysterio, WWE Rey Mysterio, he had aged his son. You know, Dominic wrestling, and obviously he's old enough to, you know, to have the son that old, you know, and uh, he's in pretty much late 40s now. But uh, Rey Mysterio will never take the mask off on WWE TV, therefore, he'll remain the same way. Yeah. And he's just as good, too. So, did you know that in WWE that the Ultimate Dragon against Rey Mysterio already happened? Did it happen, uh, what, 2004? Four, yeah, I think so. I don't think it was televised. They wanted to have the match. Actually, they do that in the ring, but they wasn't, wasn't for the TV or something. Ah. The first week that the Ultimate Dragon came in. See, Ultimate Dragon wanted to work WWE too because then he worked every single major promotion in the world. The WWE was the last place that he, had, he hadn't worked at the time. So one year period, he went into WWE and had his run with WWE as, as Ultimate Dragon. Yeah, unfortunately, it was a time when WWE was restructuring too, and the cruiserweight division didn't really take off. Like, they didn't do much for him. And yeah. also, they were going to change his mask and the costume. You know, like a different kind of mask, like a more like a Kato. Yeah. Ah. Uh, you know, like a Bruce Lee Kato, Green yep. Hornet. Yeah, mm -hmm. it wasn't. The Ultimate Dragon had to look like Ultimate Dragon. Yeah. When when I was in third grade, I dressed as Kato for Halloween. Oh, the Green Hornet Kato? Yeah. It was cool, <laughs> okay. and it was an easy costume. All you needed was a hat and a black mask. A hat and a black sunglasses and black yeah. jacket. Black clothes. <laughs> okay. And it was still yeah. cool. Nah. A lot of people dressed as Sting over here, Great Muta. 
And you still see Liger cos cosplay guy on New Japan shows, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I not just at, one, but the, a few of them. I was at the uh, PCW Ultra in Los Angeles last week. I saw lots of different wrestlers uh, in, in the bathroom. The mask and costume. Eating taco. Uh, yeah, for some people, it's, yeah, of course. Of course, it's uh, better than your superhero, right? Like a Marvel, you know. Well, some people have, you know, your Avengers, but uh, Lucha Libre has the same effect. Yeah. Well, I think it's because a fan can uh, abstract a lot of different ideas onto the legacy of a masked wrestler. There's a lot yeah. of, you can read so much of the truth on somebody's face. And if you can't read that, there's a mask. There's yeah. A lot more, there's a lot more that we input into the story ourselves our minds start to uh, create meaning on things that you know for some reason these wrestlers especially mass wrestlers mean a lot to other people for different reasons and huh, I, interesting I, I think um when you see the ultimo dragon mask that means something to everybody but it might just mean something different to everybody else too it's sure, he's sure. A ma- being a mass wrestler that's that's what you have to Kind of not deal with, but that's what you have to expect because you're not connecting in a, a regular way, face to face. You know, when somebody cuts a promo, you can see their face. You're connecting so much more deeply when there's a mask on. Um, <laughs> we have yeah. to kind of uh, fill in the blanks ourselves. And if the person, uh, the wrestler, doesn't speak, it's even more mysterious. The great moods of Ultimo mm. Dragon. Even. Mm. Um, so I think uh, Ultimo Dragon not only is important and uh, has had such an impact on wrestling, but also, a little bit, kind of, I don't think he's transcended wrestling, but he's definitely carved out his own way, his own path. And I think yeah. that, that means uh, different things to different people. I think he's influenced a lot. And what's important is that he stay being Ultimate Dragon. He never, never changed. And, and it was always yeah. part of any project he would do. There would always be a dragon name on any of the brands he was Right, right. Ultimo Dragon means ultimate dragon. He is the ultimate. I think we did a good job covering most everything, but um think so? I hope so. Yeah. Anybody has questions, how can we reach you? If you wanted to um, ask you. On Twitter at Fumihikodayo, F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O, at Fumihikodayo on Twitter, or just Fumi Saito on Facebook. Please message me first. And on Twitter, I'm at Justin at Nippercan. I so that's it. That's Ultimo Dragon, parts one and two. So until next time, Fumi, take it away. So long from Tokyo. Mm-hmm.